Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Today on the show, I sit down with Dr. Mark Hyman. Mark is a practicing family physician and an internationally recognized leader, speaker, educator, and advocate in the field of functional medicine. He is the founder and director of the Ultra Wellness Center, the head of strategy and innovation of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, and a 14-time New York Times bestselling author. He is also the host of a fantastic podcast that I listen to all the time titled The Doctor's Pharmacy. That's pharmacy with an F. Now, recently, Mark came and stayed in Topanga with us for a couple of weeks, and we went deep on the topic of longevity and how we can not only increase our lifespan, but also expand our health span and thrive into old age. Now, given all of the knowledge and all of the technology at our disposal, it seems like we should be living longer. But life expectancy in the United States has actually gone down over the past few years, even before COVID. And this downward trend is primarily attributable to the efflorescence of chronic diseases like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Now, as a functional medicine doctor, Mark is always looking for root causes, not just treating symptoms. And in our conversation, Mark takes us upstream to answer the question as to why chronic disease has become so prevalent in our society. Do these diseases all share an underlying source? Now, Mark and I discussed the hallmarks of aging, epigenetics, DNA methylation, inflammation, gut permeability, and blood sugar levels. And Mark shares some of his experiences from Sardinia, Italy, one of the five blue zones and the place with the highest concentration of male centenarians in the world. We talk about diet and adversity mimetics like fasting and cold therapy and how they activate longevity pathways in the body. This was such a fun conversation and Mark did it while hooked up to an NAD IV drip, if you can believe it. Now, Mark has a fantastic course on Commune 
that will teach you how to turn your regular primary care physician into a functional medicine doctor. You can sample part of the course for free at onecommune.com healthcare. So without further ado, I present to you, Dr. Mark Hyman. Mark, how you doing, man? I'm so good. Thanks, Jeff. You know, so you've been here on the commune for a couple of weeks. It's been just so delightful to have you here. Just you bring so much effervescent energy, and I hope that uh, that you uh, have enjoyed some of the kookiness of the commune here. Just running into people right and left. I know you had just sort of a serendipitous run-in with Michael Beckwith the other day. <laughs> he texted right. me, and. Um, and I hope you've gotten you've wound back your biological clock a little bit while you're while you. I think been I here. probably have. I think this is a this is a good reverse aging spot. Well, this is my idea <laughs> that I want to unveil to you that we haven't talked about. Oh, and uh, and this plays right into your expertise. Um, but I want to start my own mini blue zone. Yes, right here yes. in Topanga. And I think that this we have this ten acre property here, and we've been engaging in all of some of the core practices or modalities of the blue zones. Of course, for them, it's just the natural way they live. For us, we think about it as and where's your herd of two hundred sheep that we have to go up in the Topanga Mountains with? I don't know. I haven't seen well, that yet. Well, the next time you're back, <laughs> I'm going to be a shepherd. That's my and see, I'll just put on my hood and we'll be good to go. You'll come back with a staff. So you have a an IV. Uh, dripping into you. We'll talk about that. I think that's NAD. I'm biohacking, yeah. otherwise known as upgrading my biology with functional medicine. Uh, yeah, and I'm. I mean, bio, you know, I love the high, the whole term biohacking, but it actually is just functional medicine. <laughs> that, that's right, and um, I'm super interested in NAD in particular, and hopefully we can get there. Mm, mm. But um, you know, we've been engaging in all sorts of. I get. I guess what they call adversity memetics or hormetic um, modalities while we've been here. We, I know you've been in the cold plunge pretty regularly. Pretty much. Um, I think I overdid it this morning. I came in here shaking. But I think it's because <laughs> activating my brown fat. <laughs> right. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that. I've recently been learning about my brown fat. I think it's somewhere around In between here. your shoulder blades, yes. And, uh, and going into the sauna and... Um, obviously uh communing bringing mm -hmm. community together mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you hosted an incredible dinner of just beautiful souls mm -hmm. and also orchestrated like a sharing exercise yeah that if anything is going to make us younger and less stressed and feel more connected yeah. it's, it's what you conducted the other night yeah and also just diet which i know is a, a regular um practice for you, but just, uh, you know, you brought in great food and chefs and uh, obviously continuing to educate people on optimal diets and, and anti-inflammatory mm. diets. Yeah. And so this is, um, so as we plot our blue zone, uh, our mini blue zone here. I love that idea. Um, you know, you you went to Sardinia I did. recently. I did. To a real blue zone. Um Maybe just describe for a second for people that aren't familiar with blue zones, what they are and how Sardinia plays into that and what yeah. were your, some of your 
takeaways well, uh, from yeah, that trip. For sure. Well, my friend Dan, Dan Butner, who wrote the book Blue Zones, uh, was a National Geographic explorer. And he went to seek out the places in the world where there was the uh, populations that had the greatest longevity, where there were the most centenarians. And he identified a number of places, and apparently there was a scientist who'd also been looking at this, and the way he, he, he mapped them out was he circled the spots in blue on the map. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why they're called blue zones. <laughs> and and uh, there are five of them that he's identified, Sardinia, where they have the longest-lived males in the world, uh, Ikaria or Ikaria, I don't know how you say it exactly, it's in Greece, mm -hmm. uh, Okinawa in Japan, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, and Loma Linda, California, where, where there's the Seventh-day Adventists, which have uh, a history of longevity. And, and they, he identified a number of characteristics that they had in common that were longevity um, enhancers that, that I think could be replicated for most of us. Diet clearly was key. And it's obviously whole foods diet, phytonutrient-rich diet, anti-inflammatory diet. It did include meat, and animal products, but they were more of a side dish than a main dish often. Mm -hmm. And then obviously natural activity, the Sardinians. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I went to Sardinia and you know, it's a lot landlocked mountainous area, which has been protected from invasion from, uh, conquerors for thousands of years because it's just too damn hard to get in there and get up there. So nobody could actually invade them. And they kept their traditions for unchecked for thousands of years. And it's mountainous. There's shepherds. They have goats. They have sheep. They live close in community together. They, their natural order of life is almost a default for longevity. So the food they're eating is, we don't call it that, but it was all organic and regenerative. You know? right. It was just what they ate. The sheep and the goats are, are grazing on various plants. And they know actually to take the animals to different pastures and different wild plants at different times of the season to enhance the flavor of the milk and the meat. So they understand from a cultural perspective that in order for food to taste good, it has to actually be fed the right things. And one, one of these uh, Sardinians I met, Olinto, served me this nose-to-tail pork meal, which was quite amazing. He says, we flavor the meat before we kill the animal. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, well, we feed it all these things like acorns and different foods and different plants. So the actual flavor of the meat. And now we know scientifically that in milk and, for example, meat that has, I mean, the animals have been eating a variety of wild plants or a diversity of forage, which contains a whole array of phytochemicals. Those phytochemicals end up in the milk and meat. So, for example, green tea we know is so good for you. It has these catechins that are anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory and detoxifying and promote longevity and activate sirtuins and all these wonderful things. There is high levels uh, in goat milk that have been eating these plants as there are in green tea. So they have all these sort of naturally embedded things. And then they just like to hang out and they talk and there's community. Nobody lives alone. They don't have nursing homes. If you're old, you know... If you don't have kids, you go with your, your nephew or your niece. Or, and there's this beautiful sense of community and celebration and doing things together. And the families have this continuity. So they have so many pieces. They have, they have the food. They have the natural activity of shepherding. And this guy, uh, Pietro, was 95 years old. And I met him, <laughs> like upright, straight as a board, booming voice. I mean, he's not a frail little old guy. And he was like a shepherd that had been, you know, taking his sheep up the mountains five miles every day and, and having enormous amounts of exercise in very mountainous terrain for 
you know, probably 80 years. <laughs> and yeah. he was naturally healthy and was hanging out on the bench with his friends, laughing, talking, you know, it was just, it's just beautiful to see. Yeah. When you talk about that lifestyle, and I visited Sardinia probably 10 years ago, so I, I got a, a little bit of a glimpse into that as well. It always <clears throat> makes me think about how our culture has outpaced our own human evolution in yeah. some ways. Yeah. So we have all of these tools of modernity, mm. you know, cars and internet and all of these things that we kind of think are great and are part of our freedom, mm. et cetera. But really, uh, they're contributing to like a very sedentary life. So we're not moving our bodies naturally anymore. Mm. We have to go to the gym and we put that in our little calendar and that's represented by this little fluorescent blob. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people didn't used to go to the gym, but it turns out they were a lot healthier because they were moving their body kind of day to day. And here we are in a relatively mountainous um, area of Los Angeles up in the Santa Monica mountains. And when I'm up here, I find myself walking and moving and I'm in the garden and I'm squatting and I'm going on hikes all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and just being fit becomes just a natural part of your life. Right. And then you talk about the diet and there's this whole new school of like, uh, I think it's called like phytohormesis or phytohormetic plants yeah, or yeah, something yeah. That, uh, that you talk about, well, you know, what we eat, kind of the industrial <clears throat> animals and processed meats that we eat in the United States, well, they're not, you know, fed like they are in, in Sardinia. They're force-fed, force like, GMO grains, which they're not really no, suited for. No, not supposed to eat grains. That's why they have to give them <laughs> antibiotics. Their stomachs don't blow up. It's called bloat. And they have this procedure that they use for these cows where they stick a giant hose down their throat to basically let the gas out because of the fermentation of the starches that they're not normally eating. <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy. And, um, and all of these, all of the sort of our behaviors and our environment, because that's all we are. We're organisms spontaneously emerging moment to moment in relationship to our environment and to other organisms. You're a, you, not very many people know that you were an Asian studies yeah, <laughs> major. So you know all about Buddhism. Yeah. Siddhartha Gautama with no MD <laughs> at the end of his name sort of knew this instinctually. Yeah. But now, you know, uh, we're discovering that a lot of our behaviors and our environment are leading to chronic disease, which yeah. you so eloquently talk about, mm. you know, Alzheimer's, cancer, um, you know, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, etc. But you, as a systems biologist, are always trying to get upstream. Yeah. And so can you talk about how those diseases are actually contributing to a decline in life expectancy and what is the common upstream element to all these yeah. diseases? Well, you know, it's interesting. In, 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 in many areas of the world where they're, you know, like, for example, Australia, they, they, they put billions and billions of dollars into improving nutrition and lifestyle and prevention, and they've actually extended their life expectancy. In America, where we have, quote, the best healthcare system in the world, we spend twice as many dollars per capita on healthcare as any other nation and, and are like, I think, 38th in, in the world in yeah. our healthcare outcomes and, and often and last among the industrialized nations. Uh, in terms of infant mortality and life, you know, all the things that are the metrics of, of, of a successful, healthy population, we suck. 
And, and we are now experiencing incredible rates of obesity and chronic disease. Uh, 88% of us are metabolically unhealthy. And in, in, during COVID, we know we're 5% of the population in the world, but up to 25% of the deaths and cases. And why is that? Despite the fact that we have better healthcare systems, better technologies than anybody else. And it's not just political incompetence. It's because our population is sick. And over the last, uh, even before COVID, our life expectancy had been going down for multiple years in a row. And with COVID, it went down even more. For Hispanic and African-American populations, we saw a three-year drop in life expectancy. For everybody else, it was a year and, a ch a year and change. And that's terrifying to me. And the reason is we are living in a disease-promoting culture. And chronic disease is so prevalent. And you mentioned all the ones we're suffering from. But we're missing the boat because we practice what I call whack-a-mole medicine. We're trying to find the cure for cancer, the cure for Alzheimer's, the cure for diabetes, the cure for heart disease, the cure for stroke, the cure for this. And without understanding that there are mechanisms upstream of all those diseases, that if you fix those, the diseases go away. So let's just take, for example, cancer and heart disease. If we eradicated cancer and heart disease from the planet, how long do you think we live extra? How many years extra we live? Not many. A couple of years, yeah. two, three years, five years. We're not going to see a life extension of 10, 20, 30, 40 years like we're, for example, seeing in animals where we can do experiments with calorie restriction or other mimetics like that. And we see people would be, the human corollary would be to live to be 120 or 180 or 200, or even 1,000 years old by some of the things that are happening as we deal with the upstream drivers of aging. So, so age, the, the biggest risk factor for aging, you think of, if you take a 30-year-old who's a smoker and a 75-year-old who's non-smoker, who has a bigger risk of cancer, lung cancer? It's not the 30-year-old, it's the 75-year-old because smoking is not as much of a risk factor for cancer. And it's a huge risk factor than aging itself. So aging mm. is the biggest risk factor for all the age-related disease because Aging itself is a disease, and we've thought of it as a normal consequence of getting older. You, get, you always are going to get older, but you don't have to age in the same way that we are seeing prevalent in our society. That's a fabrication of, or so a representation of the ways in which we're living that accelerate all the underlying mechanisms. So when you go upstream to all these diseases, the scientists are now identifying these things called the hallmarks of aging. These are mechanisms or system failures that can explain all these diseases. And if you go upstream and fix those, you don't get another three to four years of life extension. You might get 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of life extension. But, but then the question is, what's upstream to the hallmarks of aging? Because, because again, we're always in this reductionist view. Oh, oh, this is why we're getting yeah. sick. We have you're like a little kid. You're like, but why? But why? <laughs> but why? <laughs> why? Well, you know, my mother, my mother was probably responsible. She was like, when I came home from school, she didn't say, "What did you learn in school today?" She said, "What questions did you ask?" <laughs> so I'd like the Mister Why. Yeah. I would be the I would be the nerdy kid in the front of the class in medical school who would not leave the classroom until I got all my questions answered <laughs> and I understood why. And and yeah. and that made me extremely successful in medical school because I, I actually understood things and I wanted to. Know to the root of the problem, and I wanted to see how things all connected. It turns out that, you know, systems biology is, is helping us understand that there are basic fundamental laws of biology. You know, we have, we have laws of physics, we have the Newtonian laws, quantum physics, but you can write them all on a piece of paper, right? I mean, there's not that many. Yeah. But they explain 
an infinite number of phenomena that we see all around us, you know, from gravity to, you know. Yeah, thermodynamics and transfer of energy. I mean, mean, think about the complexity of sending a a ship to space, a rocket ship. It's a complex problem, but but it's, it's, it's a solvable problem based on a, a small number of general laws that we agree on. In biology, we've never come to that. We, we've never really had a theory of medicine. We've never had a set of laws or principles or rules that we can follow that we, if we do, we can solve a myriad of complex diseases. Right now, we, we're, we're, we're practicing whack-a-mole medicine. We have 155,000 diseases, and it's, it's stupid because they're, they're not separate diseases. Heart disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, these are not separate problems. They all have the same underlying pathologies and mechanisms. They're just manifested differently in different people. And so there's hallmarks of aging. We can get into them. But those are driven by upstream factors, which we have control over. What we eat, what we think, our relationships, toxins, allergens, microbes, our microbiome, and, and, and all of our lifestyle habits all influence the either positive or negative expression of health or disease and regulate these hallmarks of aging Hmm. so we can get into some of those things down in the rabbit hole of dna methylation or mitochondrial dysfunction etc but i think one thing i one thread i'd like to pull on is a statistic that you referenced um just there around metabolic syndrome or metabolic dysfunction i think you said 88 percent of americans are experiencing some form of degraded metal, metabolic health. What does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. So, so you know, essentially what it means is we're all in somehow in the spectrum of diabetes and prediabetes. Yeah. So poor metabolic health is defined as high blood sugar, abnormal cholesterol, or high blood pressure. And in medicine, we talk about comorbidities. Oh, cholesterol is a problem. Blood pressure is a problem. Blood sugar is a problem. They're all separate. We have to treat them all separately with different drugs. No, <laughs> they're, they're all connected by underlying root mechanisms that have to do with glucose and insulin and our metabolic health. So it's those, all those problems stem from having something we call insulin resistance or what you mentioned called metabolic syndrome, it used to be called syndrome X. But essentially it's where we have dysregulated blood sugar mm-hmm. because we're eating foods that we're not adapted to eat. So genetically, some of us are the yellow canaries, like Native Americans, African Americans, Latinos, East Asians, Samoans, Pacific Islanders, all are massively carbohydrate intolerant. They look at a bagel and they gain weight, right? Whereas some of us, you know, maybe are more insulin sensitive genetically. So if I have a can of Coke, my insulin goes like this. Uh, Maybe if you're a Pima Indian, it goes like this. Well, the consequences of the same food causing different profound responses leads to these accelerated uh, pathologies we see. For example, in the Native Americans, you know, they're, they're, they're um, at 30, 30, by the age of 30, 80% have type 2 diabetes. Their life expectancy is 46. You know, children are getting type 2 diabetes at 2 and 3 years old because they're feeding their kids soda. <laughs> so so, we, yeah. ha- so we, 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 you know, we used to call it adult onset diabetes. We can't call it that anymore. Now we have to call it type two instead of juvenile and adult onset diabetes. Yeah. Give me an idea of the scale of pre-diabetes, for example, at this juncture. I mean, right. What's 88%. Yeah. So, so 75% of people are overweight. 
40 up over up moving over 40 percent are obese and even skinny people can have this so yeah. there's a phenomenon called metabolically obese normal weight or skinny fat or tofi thin on the outside fat on the inside so essentially you have this accumulation of visceral fat organ fat that may not make you in terms of your bmi your body mass index overweight technically but you're over fat and under lean and so if you have not enough muscle too much fat you end up with this phenomena of pre-diabetes. But the problem with calling it pre-diabetes implies that it, in and of itself, it's not a problem until you get diabetes. But it's a misnomer because pre-diabetes itself will cause heart attacks, strokes, cancers, Alzheimer's, and pre-diabetes causes pre-dementia. It's not, there's no pre to it. It's actually deadly in and of itself. Yeah, you're already on the spectrum. Yeah, and, and it's a spectrum, yeah. right? So there's, there's a spectrum from just mild blood sugar imbalances all the way to full-blown type 2 diabetes. Right. So let's pull the thread on that mechanism, you know, because oftentimes we hear like, okay, well, diabetes is a precursor for coronary artery, coronary yeah, artery yeah, disease yeah. or something. So I'll just set you up and then you can kind of explain to us like what happens when there is, when you get hyperglycemic, chronic, yeah, yeah. chronic hyperglycemia. So we eat carbs. A lot of us don't eat particularly well. We eat processed foods or refined sugars, refined grains, et cetera. That goes into our GI tract. Our stomach does its best to break it down with enzymes and acids and stuff. It enters our small intestine as chyme or some sort of slurpy substance or whatever, and it gets absorbed into our bloodstream from there as glucose and insulin, that's a little peptide hormone that produced in the pancreas, picks it up, and it's supposed to usher it to our cells, uh, where there are these little mitochondria, our energy production factories that are supposed to then create ATP mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. of glucose. That's great when that's all happening at its optimal level, but that's not what's happening with people with metabolic syndrome. So what's going on in that yeah. supply chain? Well, well, I'm going to just, you know, before I dive into that, I just want, I just want to frame this a little bit because science is advancing so fast and most doctors and media and and certainly the government and the policymakers do not have a clue what's happening here. There, there are now defined a number of key longevity switches in the body mm. that are regulated by nutrients and it's a nutrient sensing system. So we have exquisite systems in our body to detect levels of amino acids and fatty acids and sugars that then turn on or off different mechanisms that either help us build new tissue, do things we have to do, more protein, protein synthesis, or to repair, break down, and clean up all the things that need to be cleaned up. And so these nutrient sensing pathways regulate longevity. And you need to turn them on and off in the right balance, in the right way, kind of like Goldilocks, so you can actually extend your life and optimize your health. The problem is we are always in the on position. We never give our body a pause and rest. So, I mean, from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed, we're eating. I mean, the invention of snacking has been the biggest abomination and disaster for human health yeah. because we, we just are constantly flooding our system with nutrients and don't give our body a chance to repair and heal. And the worst form of these nutrients and the things that, that actually affect uh, these pathways called sirtuins, AMPK, and mTOR, which are these longevity switches that regulate aging and health and repair of tissues and rejuvenation and reversal of aging, these are activated in a, in a bad way or suppressed, in, as we talk about, in a bad way when you have too much circulating sugar. 
and 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 we are in a flood of sugar. We eat 152 pounds of sugar, 133 pounds of flour per person per year, almost a pound a day per person of substances that we never ate until about 100 years ago. I mean, the, the, right. the flour mill was an invention of the 1800s. In 1800, we consumed about, you know, maybe 10 pounds of sugar a year. Now we consume about 152 pounds, and our hunter-gatherer ancestors consumed 22 teaspoons a year. Now the average American consumes that every day. That's right? insane. Every day. Yeah. And our biology is, is not adapted to that. So mm. we have all these mechanisms that adapt us to starvation, scarcity, adversity. And it's great at keeping us alive and healthy when there ain't enough food around. But if we're you know, living in a food carnival 24-7, uh, all the, the pathways that lead to disease are turned on and all the pathways that are disease reversal pathways are turned off. And mm. so... When you consume large amounts of glucose and large amounts of starch and sugar, and people talk about complex simple carbohydrates, people are still confused about this. I talked to a doctor the other day, he's like, oh, you want to eat complex carbs? I'm like, white bread is a complex carb. It just has to do with the structure of the starch. That's what it means, it's a scientific term. What we really should care about is the glycemic load and the glycemic index of foods. How does it spike your blood sugar? So yeah. white bread, which is a complex carb, spikes your blood sugar more than sugar, which is a simple carb, which is worse for you. The bread, right? <laughs> you yeah. might as well have your, you know, sugar on your sandwich instead of bread. And bread. <laughs> no, but I'm not saying to do that. But no. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. So I think I think we 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 have to understand that that we need to eat in a way that does not activate excess insulin. And mm. and the truth is, Jeff, that that most doctors do not understand this. They're looking at way late in the system of failure. So by the time you check your blood sugar and it starts going up, if it's over 87 or 85, you're starting to get in trouble. If it's 100, you're really in trouble. If it's 110, that's bad. If you're 126, it's diabetes. But your, your blood sugar stays highly controlled by high levels of insulin until it can't keep up anymore. Yeah. And so I've seen patients who were severely metabolically deranged, who were very overweight, big giant bellies, abnormal triglycerides, low HDL, all the other biomarkers, but their blood sugar is perfect, perfect. I'm like, how is this possible? And I give them a giant sugar load, like if I call them two Coca-Colas, perfect okay. blood sugar, nothing. What's up? And I check their insulin levels. Now, most doctors never check their insulin level. And her insulin levels were 10, 20 times normal to keep her blood sugar down until it can't compensate anymore. And then the blood sugar starts going up. Right. So you're stressing the pancreas at that juncture, right? Yeah. The, yeah. And so, so, you know, if I were to say like you say, Mark, what is the number one test you would do to check on someone to see really everything about their longevity and aging? It would be insulin. Yeah. And if I had my choice, it would be insulin after giving them two Coca-Colas. <laughs> so not fasting insulin. Well, fasting, yes. Yeah. But the first step is the first step is your your two hour insulin or thirty minute insulin goes up. Mm -hmm. Then your fasting insulin goes up. Then your two hour sugar goes up. Then your fasting sugar goes up. Then over time your A one C goes up. So when doctors yeah. are checking things, they're checking things like way way, way downstream. Late. Yeah. So let's say there's a big bouncer at the door of your cell, and it says, you know. Uh, no more glucose for energy, you know, sorry, insulin, the club is full, you yeah. know? And so then you have hyperglycemia mm -hmm. 
And yes, yeah, some of that glucose can be stored in the liver as glycogen and can be used for a rainy day, right? 2,500 calories. Okay, so not much. So what happens to all of the other high concentrated uh, when your when your bloodstream is high concentrated. What, what happens is what happens. Is insu- two things really happen. One is that your your insulin will keep increasing to shove the fuel into your cells, but it doesn't just shove it into any cells. It preferentially shoves it into your fat cells around your belly, your belly fat. We call it mm-hmm. visceral fat. Yeah. So essentially, it floods these fat cells with fat free fatty acids and glucose, and it just they get nice and big and fat. And then they turn into these monster fat cells that are uh, dangerous. They're like producing all these inflammatory molecules, cytokines, hormones, neurotransmitters. And so you end up seeing that these are basically factories for death and disease. So why is obesity such a huge risk factor for COVID? Right. Because those fat cells in the belly produce a cytokine called interleukin-6 or IL-6. Right. When you get a virus, it's like, it's like you're already pre-inflamed. And the virus activates your immune system, but it's like it just overshoots. And then you get this phenomenon called the cytokine storm we've heard about. Right. And that's what kills people. And so if you, if you don't have a lot of these cytokines floating around... You're, you're going to be less likely to get really sick. Yeah, this is so important because, you know, when people are reading the news or watching the news and, you know, they're seeing, oh, well, the mortality uh, around COVID is connected to people with X amount of comorbidities. Well, this is this is yeah. why yeah. you've just you've just basically explained why that happens. Yes. And so uh, we talk about cancer, dementia, heart disease, kidney disease, high blood pressure stroke and obviously diabetes they're all caused by the same thing they're (laughs) all caused by insulin resistance they're calling alzheimer's type 3 diabetes cancer is so much higher in people who are overweight or have insulin resistance or diabetes say same with heart disease stroke and everything else so it is the biggest single problem we have and and it's super solvable by modulating our diet and exercising and dealing with those underlying longevity switches and learning how to actually turn the right switches in the right way so you ask me, like, what happens when you have this flooding liver? The first thing is you get these, this sort of visceral fat, which is very dangerous, angry fat. It has these downstream consequences. And once the fat gets in there, which is fascinating, it can't get out. So insulin inhibits something called lipolysis. Right. Lipolysis is the breakdown of fat. Lipogenesis is the making of fat. So it's really good at making fat, but you, it's like a, a subway with one-way turnstile. Once it gets in, it can't get out. Second, it slows your metabolism down. Third, it makes you hungry as hell. So you eat more by screwing up your brain chemistry because your, your insulin levels are pushing sugars down and up and down. And that's, and that, those are the swings. And when people get hangry, it's because their blood sugar is low, but it's the swings. So you get actually really, really hungry. And, and you get all this inflammatory downstream phenomena that actually makes it all worse. So it's a vicious cycle because inflammation from any reason will cause more insulin resistance independent of what you're eating. Hmm. So there's that phenomena. And then, and then, when the sugars you know, can't get in, then they're floating around the blood and they cause this horrible phenomena which disrupts our protein yeah. uh, and our, our, our proteins. And this is one of the hallmarks of aging, which is this disruption of protein function. So protein function depends on protein structure. Then they're carefully folded proteins and all that have to be in the right shape and size, not just the right string of amino acids. 
What happens is something called glycation. When too much sugar is floating around, it binds inexorably to the proteins, causing basically what we call ages, a advanced glycation end products, also which bind to rages, receptors for advanced glycation end products. Mm -hmm. So if you eat sugar, you age and you rage, right? <laughs> Your body rage. Oh, no. And, and what, what's going on here is, is the phenomenon we are all familiar with. It's called the mallet reaction. When you bake bread, it's the crust. When you, you know, put a chicken in the oven, it gets crispy. That's the skin. When you when you have barbecue, creme, right? Or barbecue. When you yeah. have creme brulee, that little crispy stuff on the top, that's all. That's all glycation. All the good stuff, man. That's all glycation. <laughs> no. Why do we get cataracts and diabetics? Why? Yeah. Because the sugars and the proteins gum up the proteins, and you get cataracts. But that happens throughout your body, and that's what we measure as hemoglobin A1C, which is how we check for diabetes it's the sugars binding to the hemoglobin molecule uh -huh. but it's not happening just in your hemoglobin it's happening everywhere and in your brain it causes alzheimer's in your kidneys it causes kidney failure in your blood vessels it causes high blood pressure and on and on so when there's too high concentration of blood sugar in your in your bloodstream, you're talking about this glycation process, these production of glycoproteins, essentially uh, glucose fusing with hemoglobin or creating these advanced glycation end products. Is that essentially pocking up your vascular system? I mean, wh how, what is the method or what is the kind of pathway there by which, you know, you're disrupting the glassiness of your vascular system such that then subsequently well, LDL can, you know, lodge yeah, itself I mean, in the endothelium. One, one the, the proteins just become dysfunctional. And, yeah. And, and think about proteins as informational molecules. Mm. They're like words. So it's like all of a sudden you're talking to me and your body can't understand the language anymore of the proteins because the proteins are the language and the, and the words that are cells are receiving to give instructions about what they should do and how they should do their job. So all that communication system screws up. So it's impaired communication and signaling, and it's basically like static. Mm -hmm. so the body doesn't quite know what to do. And second, it, 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 literally, it literally activates these, what we call rages, these, these receptors for advanced glycation end products. And what happens when those fucked up proteins <laughs> bind to the receptors? It activates a cascade of, of further downstream signals that turn on your immune system, that cause oxidative stress, and that perpetuate this vicious cycle of inflammation. And what is often, uh, you know, thought of as, as sort of uh, the aging phenomena has been termed inflammaging. Right now, inflammaging is is again is is downstream from many things. What causes inflammation? It's like, oh yes, inflammation causes aging. Well, what causes inflammation? <laughs> You know, it's what we're eating. It's lack of exercise. It's stress. It's toxins. It's allergens. It's bad bugs in our gut. It's all the, the, the all the phenomena that we're exposed to that that actually cause the irritation in our systems. Where immune systems like, ah, I better go deal. Okay, so I think we've covered insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity pretty well. Um, the yeah, other, I've got about another fourteen books on the topic. Uh, yeah, right. But if you uh, want to go deeper, <laughs> yeah. The, you know, you can endlessly go down the rabbit hole on it. I want to um, switch gears for a second and talk about the microbiome for a mm, moment, mm. Um, because this is also uh, a topic of a large body of work um, for you. Yeah. 
and um, and just set the table for us for a moment, you know, maybe just some microbiome 101, what's going on with these 39 sure, trillion sure. cells in our gut, and why are they important, and what's the relationship between what's going on there with all that bacteria and our, and our metabolic health? For sure. Well, the, the, you know, I'm so interested in poop. When I worked at Canyon Ranch, they <laughs> called me Dr. C. Every Poop. Because <laughs> as opposed to Dr. C. Everett Coop, who was a surgeon general. Right. <laughs> and I was always interested in poop for 30 years. I've been looking at poop. And it, it's, it's like a treasure trove of information about what's happening in the body that has been primarily ignored by medicine. And, and, and at a high level, you basically are a host for the bacteria that live in you. You're outnumbered 10 to 1. Your genes are outnumbered 100 to 1. And even if you look in your bloodstream, you know, when you think about what, what do genes do? Okay, well, there's 20,000 genes that humans have. There's maybe two to four or five million genes in the microbiome. What are they doing? They're, they're synthesizing proteins. That's all genes do. Yeah. And what are proteins? They're code, they're information, they're instructions to tell your body what to do. So if you're producing bad code, your body ain't gonna work. And if you're producing good code, it's gonna work. So historically, we've evolved a microbiome that is critical for the functioning of our health. And what's really striking, and this was just blew my mind when I learned this, is that if you do a blood sample, we think, oh, we're human. No, probably 30 to 50% of the shit in our blood is literally shit. <laughs> it's, literally, <laughs> it's literally the informational molecules from the metabolites of the microbiome. Mm. And I, I actually, I can actually tell what bugs people have in their gut by collecting your urine. Why? Because those metabolites are absorbed and then you excrete them. Okay. So I, for example, I can see that there's markers of fungal overgrowth from a, uh, a test called arabinose in the urine. Now, bot the human body doesn't make this molecule, arabinose. It only comes from yeast. And so when I see a ton of arabinose in the urine, I'm like, oh, this guy's microbiome's messed up. And I, and I can, you know, if I see... Um, DHPA, DHPBA, which is another metabolite, I go, oh, they probably have overgrowth of this Clostridia bacteria. Or if I see this and that, I can tell what's going on. So the gut uh, immune and, and, and the microbiome is a critical component of, of, of your health. And it's, I think it should be one of the hallmarks of aging is a disturbance and decline in the function of our microbiome. And some people are including it. Yeah. And, and the reason is that the microbiome uh, not only helps you digest your food, it not only helps you produce vitamins, not only regulates your immune system, not only helps you detect friend from foe, but it, it's actually essential to be in balance for you to be healthy. And when it's out of balance, it creates an inflammatory cascade. So you basically produce toxic metabolites that are inflammatory. They produce endotoxins like lipopolysaccharides. So for example, <clears throat> and by the way, you know, the microbiome has been linked now to everything, right? So Alzheimer's, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, autism, Alzheimer's, autoimmune disease, depression. I mean, antibiotics can cause depression by mucking up your microbiome and screwing up your neurotransmitters in your brain. I mean, think about that. So you've got this incredible multidimensional system in there that is constantly communicating, interacting with you, determining the quality of your health for good or bad. And so we, we have now in the last 150 years, changed so many things in our environment, our culture, and our food, that we, we really have, are living in a gut-busting culture. And I'll, so I'll just take us through that a little bit. Yeah. The first thing that happened is the refining of food. Refined flours, refined oils, sugar, all those feed bad bugs. 
They love that stuff. Second, we've been exposed to enormous amounts of uh, environmental chemicals, uh, 80,000 new chemicals in our food and the market, you know, metals, pesticides, phthalates, PCBs, uh, food additives, carrageenan, and all these things impact the microbiome by affecting the quality of the bugs that grow there, by causing leaky gut, by causing all kinds of secondary problems. And, and then we've flooded the market with drugs that are gut-busting drugs, antibiotics. I mean, there's, I think, 37 million pounds of antibiotics used every year. 29 million are used for animals to prevent disease because of overcrowding. And that causes antibiotic resistance and, and you, you know, it just changes the whole microbiome. You know, one dose of antibiotics, for example, in a woman will kill a keystone species called Bifidobacterium infantis, which is critical for the baby to get when they go through the birth canal and swallow it, which then colonizes their gut. And 25% of breast milk is indigestible, unavailable calories for the baby. Why would nature, God, the goddess, divine, whatever you want to call it, why would they, why would they put 25% of calories in breast milk that the baby can't even eat yeah. or, or use? It's food for the bugs. And so these babies are born without this, and then they end up having more allergy, more autoimmunity, more inflammatory diseases, eczema, asthma. All these things are secondary to not having a good microbiome. Wow. That's, so that's kind of the equivalent of eating indigestible fiber or something like that for a Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's just one example. Yeah. And so then you, you look at the, the other drugs that we use besides antibiotics, acid-blocking drugs, which are a third leading uh, most PPIs prescribed drugs or, like like Asifex yeah. and Prevacid and Prelosec and the purple pill and yeah. and it helps with heartburn. But why do you have heartburn? Like it, people ask right questions like, here you have heartburn, take this pill. No, why do you have heartburn? Functional medicine is the medicine of why. Regular medicine is the medicine of what. Oh, what what's causing your heart indigestion? Oh, it's reflux. That's what's wrong with you. No, that's just the name of the problem, not the cause. Right. I think I heard you say name it. Blame it, Cla tame it. Claim it. Tame name it. it, blame it, tame it. We name, <laughs> yeah. we name the disease. And we, oh, I know why your stomach hurts and why you have uh, this acid feeling and heartburn. It's because you have reflux. And I know what you need. You need this reflux pill. No, reflux is just a name we give to people who share those symptoms. Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything about the cause. So we, we, we have uh, not only acid-blocking drugs, we have anti-inflammatory drugs like Advil, Aleve, those disturb the gut, aspirin. And then, of course, we have hormones like the birth control pill and... Uh, and, and, and steroids, which people are using for various things. So all that is, is terrible. And then we have, you know, one third of all babies born by C-section, breastfeeding is on the decline. All these things have a huge impact in disturbing our microbiome. So we're we all basically vulnerable to disease based in part on this metabolic dysfunction of our microbiome. And, and, and you know, one of the ways that, for example, it causes obesity, and this is fascinating, you can take the poop out of someone who's thin and healthy and put it in a diabetic, and it, literally their diabetes gets better. Yeah. Or even, and then this mouse studies, they've done mouse studies where they take poop out of a skinny mouse and put it in a fat mouse, and the fat mouse loses weight even eating the same amount of food. It's insane. So we think, yeah. oh, calories are calories are calories. No. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know. Yeah, no, I, you know, I started reading about, so some polyphenols and fiber-rich foods mm. can help feed mm. the live mm. bacteria mm. such that they create these metabolites or postbiotics, the most famous one being butyrate, right? Yes. And butyrate will actually upregulate your insulin sensitivity yes. such that it, it, it improves or ameliorates your metabolic health. And you're like, how does a bacteria <laughs> with its own DNA have anything to do with my metabolic health? But that's what we're learning. And, and, yeah. and the amazing thing about it is that we have 
a good de degree of agency in terms of what we're going to feed them. Of course. Right? I, mean, I mean, you think you're feeding yourself, but you're, you're really feeding your microbiome. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> you right. and, and so you have to be very cautious about what you're feeding, what you're not feeding it. And you, you're talking about prebiotics and po uh, probiotics and, and, and polyphenols and postbiotics. Yeah. You know, you talk about butyrate. Butyrate is basically what's produced by the bacteria when you feed them the right food. When you feed them the right food, they produce healthy levels of butyrate, which actually not only helps with insulin sensitivity, but it actually turns off oncogenes. So it's, it's, it modulates cancer. It has so many benefits. They're even using butyrate enemas, and butyrate just smells horrible. It's like the <laughs> worst freaking smelly thing. But they use it for, for treating ulcerative colitis as a mm. therapy because it can work by actually improving things. But you can now take, you can take butyrate as, as a supplement. You can increase butyrate levels by changing your diet. Uh, and it can be extremely powerful therapy. Mm. Yeah, so I think just to kind of f finish out the conversation about the microbiome, I mean, we're always pointing back upstream to this idea of inflammation. So maybe you could take us through how the gut goes into dysbiosis and yeah. then into intestinal permeability yes. and kind of like uh -huh. what's going on there. Yeah, so basically this phenomena uh, occurs called leaky gut. And it's also known as increased intestinal permeability, whatever you want to call it. I remember talking to doctors about this, you know, 20 years ago, and they would just laugh at me. Like, they would just, you're such a quack. This is ridiculous. The gut doesn't do anything. This is nonsense. It doesn't relate to anything. It turns out to be one of the most important things in medicine. And now <laughs> you can read about leaky gut in the National Library of Medicine and all these published studies. But, but essentially what's happening is this. By all the things I just mentioned that are our gut-busting life, we disturb the microbiome and create an imbalance of too many of the bad bugs, not enough good bugs, that are producing endotoxins and, and various kinds of uh, postbiotics, let's call them, yeah. that are, that are in, in, triggering inflammation. And that inflammation will break down the biofilm that protects the mucus layer. For example, acromancy is a really important keystone species in the gut that is in great decline because of all the antibiotics and all the things we've talked about. That's necessary for keeping that mucus layer like a biofilm on top of the intestine so only the good stuff gets through, right? You want your fatty acids and your glucose and sugars and, and amino acids to get through, but you don't want undigested food particles. You don't want bacterial yeah. products getting in. You don't want bacterial toxins like lipopolysaccharides getting in. What happens is this, the cells are stuck together like Legos through these tight junctions. And when you think about it, your intestinal lining and it, it basically, if you lay it out, it's the size of a tennis court or two. And then if you laid it out flat, you know, it's right. 22 feet of small intestine, about 10 feet of long intestine, large intestine. But if you laid it out flat, it's like really a, a huge surface area. But it's only one cell thick. So you're basically one cell between you and a sewer. And so there's these Lego junctions called tight junctions that are required, require energy to ATP to keep tight. Hmm. But many things can disrupt that, and we end up, particularly gluten is a huge one. Even, even in people who are not gluten sensitive, gluten has something called uh, gluten proteins or gliden proteins that activate zonulin, which is an endogenous molecule that is, is, helps regulate lots of problems we have, but it basically opens up these tight junctions. And then you get, and then you get leaking of food particles and why we see all this food sensitivities and gluten sensitivity. There's been a 400% increase in celiac disease in the last 50 years, not, not an artifact or just a new discovery. They literally pulled, pulled blood from 10,000 people 
50 years ago when they kept it in storage. And then they looked at compared to flood today and they found there was a 400% increase in this 10,000 people in true celiac, not even just gluten sensitivity. Wow. So Man. what's happened is not all of a sudden everybody's got new mutations that give them celiac. 35% of us have the celiac gene, but 1% get celiac. Well, why? It's because all of these different things. So you get this, you get this pouring of all these inflammatory molecules into your system. Now, what is below the lining of the gut? Your immune system. <laughs> yeah. This just blows people's mind, but yeah. about 60% of your entire immune system is in your gut. You know, why yeah. would that be? Well, it makes some sense. It makes right? sense because yeah. that's where you're putting you're putting pounds of foreign material every day into this tube from your mouth to your anus. It's it's outside of you. Your mouth, your anus is outside of you, literally. Even though it's inside you, it's, it literally is a is is a tube where you're putting in all this foreign stuff, and it has to make sense of it, and then let the good stuff in and keep the bad stuff out. And so all of a sudden, that system breaks down, and your immune system does what it's supposed to do. It's like, ah, what's that? That's not me. Let me attack it. Oh, God, there's that egg protein or there's that dairy protein or gluten protein. Oh, there's that bacterial toxin. And just to take it downstream a little bit, we talked about insulin resistance. So how does your, how does your poop make you gain weight, right? Well, if it's full of these endotoxic producing bacteria, they produce a compound called LPS or lipopolysaccharides that are absorbed. They bind to your you know, receptors on the immune cells, because this is what your immune system is supposed to do, is find these things. And it's like, oh, I, there's a bacteria. I better kick into gear, call in the Marines. Let's go. And so the, the immune system turns on, and then, it, and then it blocks insulin receptors. So it produces TNF-alpha and these cytokines mm -hmm. that block insulin receptors on the cells. And all of a sudden, your cells become insulin resistant. And then what happens? You make more insulin. Then what happens? You store more fat. And it just creates this whole vicious cycle. So mm. this is phenomenon called metabolic endotoxemia, which has been published in the literature, and it's 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 fixable. Uh, and I, I tell you, I had a patient that blew my mind once on this. He was a diabetic, very poorly controlled, blood sugars in the three hundreds and two high two hundreds, and just tons of drugs, insulin. Nothing was working. And we, I put him. I said, let's try keto. Let's because we know keto can help really with cutting out carbohydrates, increasing fat, and we'll talk about why that is, how that works. But but his blood sugar came down pretty good. It came down to like 120, which isn't great, but it's better than 200. <clears throat> and then he called me up and said, you know, Doc, I got all this stomach problem, I'm bloated, and I'm like, I'm having this acute issues. I said, look, we'll fix it, and I'll do this test. But in the meantime, just try charcoal, because it'll absorb the, the toxins, it'll absorb gas, it'll feel less, you'll feel less bloated and distended. Mm -hmm. And he called me back. He's like, I don't know what happened, but I took the charcoal and my blood sugar like went to perfectly normal, like 80, 90. I've never had this. And I'm like, oh, oh, he's producing so many metabolic toxins in his microbiome that that's driving his, his glucose because he was eating right. He was exercising. He was taking all the things I told him to do. It still wasn't working perfectly. I mean, it helped a lot, but even fully keto, he should get to, he should get to normal. And he didn't. He wasn't really oh, that overweight or anything. And I'm like, wow, this is a case of a metabolic endotoxemia causing his diabetes. So to wow. fix his diabetes, I had to fix his gut. Wow. It wasn't his yeah. diet. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's like well, I've learned so much from my patients because I'm like, the thing is, you know, most doctors go, this is what I know. This is what's true. And if the, if the facts, if the observations don't meet their theory or their model, they just dismiss it. Yeah. Oh, it's an anomaly. It's, but I'm like, no, no. What is the clue? What is 
It's it's in those in, it's in those sort of moments of serendipity and unexpected, you know, insights that happen from the uh, observing what's happening just passionately without judgment and without a preconceived idea of what's what. It's called mindfulness. <laughs> it's like showing up and like what's happening yeah, being, being curious it's like being curious being non-judgmentally present being curious gee this yeah. isn't this isn't fit anything i ever learned in medical school but hmm, yeah. based on but, but based on the theory of medicine right it makes sense so eo wilson a sociobiologist from harvard recently died wrote a book called consilience the unity of knowledge and in that mm. book which i think you would love or maybe you read it he talks about how all the social and scientific disciplines are all very similar. And there's this sort of like the Tao of physics and so forth. So he, he basically said me medicine has no theory. And I remember reading this like 20 years ago and I was like walking on the beach. I think I was on vacation in Nantucket or something. And I was, and I was like, holy shit, this is the problem. It's like we're in this reactive, uh, non-coherent approach to disease, which is based on Oh, you have a headache, you go to the head doctor. You have a stomach ache, you go to the stomach doctor. You have a joint pain, you go to the joint doctor. But your joint pain might be coming from your stomach, right? right? <laughs> yeah. No, this is it. I mean, this is why functional medicine or systems biology is so important. Because yeah. Because you're, you're looking at all systems. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you can make all sorts of macro metaphors with that, too, in terms of the body politic, et cetera, in terms of how systems and how different people are working together. And once you start to echo chamber parts of society, how society goes into entropy and breaks down. So there's, there's all sorts so of beautiful. metaphors. And, and the thing is, you know, he, you know, Pierre Laplace was a scientist, you know, back in the, in the 1700s, it was like, look, you know, we can, we can explain an enormous number of observed phenomena from a small number of general laws in science. And, 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 and then people think functional medicine is complicated. It's not really. It's, it's elegant. It's E equals MC squared. Explains yeah. the nature of energy and matter. Right. Right. I mean, you got like, that's kind of what we're looking for. What is the E equals MC squared of medicine? It's these fundamental mm. biological networks that underlie all disease and, and how they get disturbed and how you get them back in balance. That's it. Yeah. And if you look at some of, you know, kind of Eastern religions, it, it, you see kind of um, this emergence of opposites uh, or a coincidence of opposites that naturally emerge, um, you know, best symbolized by the yin yang, for example. Right, so right, right. you have insulin, which is the, the kind of famous hormone that is secreted by the pancreas, but you also have a counterpart that doesn't really get, that needs a new glucagon. PR <laughs> person called glucagon, and that actually will signal lipolysis, et cetera. So we've talked about how, um, how you know, metabolic health can degrade what can we do to trigger things like uh, lipolysis, kind of the breakdown yeah, yeah. of triglycerides and um, ketosis, et cetera? So maybe pull on that. Yeah, so, so, so basically my, my thinking has, has um, really evolved over this. And you know, from a functional medicine perspective, it, it, you know, my job is really to ask two questions. You know, what does this person need to get rid of that's irritating their system so they can function properly? And what are they missing that they need to thrive? So take out the bad stuff, put in the good stuff. And it and it's, you know, and there's a short list of good stuff and a short list of bad stuff that explains 155,000 diseases. It's not yes. a big list, right? Yeah. Toxins, allergens, microbes, stress, poor diet, in, interacting with your genes, you know, maybe radiation, light, so forth. And then what what are the things your body needs? It needs the right food, the right nutrients, balance of hormones, light, air, water, movement, rest, sleep, love, community, meaning, purpose, all these sort of ingredients for health. 
And so when you, you look at the longevity blue zones, they have not too much of the impediments to health and a lot of the ingredients for health. And it just yeah. activates all their healing systems. But it, kind of at a meta level, there's it's another way I've been thinking about it lately, which is just, which is exactly in the framework you're talking about, which is the elegance of nature is in on off, right? It's in right. yin yang. It's in you know dynamic balance, day night. It's 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 in all these yeah. fluctuating systems that have to be in, in equilibrium for you to be healthy. And 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 what happens is we we have too much of of things that drive disease and not of things that drive health. And so the framework of, of abundance mimetics and adversity mimetics is a really cool framing of what things you can do to actually optimize your health. Yeah. So essentially our body is constantly in a state of build up or breakdown. Now, if all you did, you, you need food because if you didn't eat food, it would die. But if you, if you fast too long, it's going to fuck you up. But if you, but if you actually fast in the right way, in the right amount for the right amount of time, it actually turns on all the switches that activate healing, repair, and 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 and, and actually help reverse aging. On the other hand, if you don't have adequate amounts of nutrients and protein and building blocks for your body, you'll waste away and die. Right. So you can it's like, or it's like hot and cold therapies. You can go in the sauna, but if you stand there too long, you'll die of heat exhaustion. If you go in the cold plunge too long, you'll die of hypothermia. So what's the Goldilocks version? And so this is, a, this is essentially yeah. how we create health. It's by finding the Goldilocks thread that we can pull on all these systems. And, and, and so that's really the work. And it's, it's, so it's adding in the things that you know will promote abundance and repair and health and also taking, taking, taking exposure to things that are going to activate these ancient healing systems. Yeah. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you in the remaining few minutes that we have together. Um, you have an IV currently hooked up uh, to you. Yeah. Um, I believe that is NAD. And some vitamins, yeah. And some vitamins. Okay, so I most associate NAD with uh, cellular respiration, with the electron transport chain, whatever, you know, pushing electrons around this little inner cellular membrane in the mitochondria that produces yeah. ATP. So that's what I kind of think of as like a big use of NAD, but that's not it, right? So there, there's all these no. other longevity functions associated with NAD. So can you break that down for a minute and, and why are you doing this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so first of all, there's been some amazing discoveries um, by, by a number of scientists, uh, Lenny Grante and David Sinclair, about you know 20 years ago around this yeast cells yeast thing sort of yeast um, that actually um, were able to uh, extend their lives by a third so be going to be 120 or even more and some yeast organisms up to a thousand years old and they basically found these longevity switches called sirtuins uh, which are these master regulatory pathways in the body that activate healing repair dna repair insulin sensitivity and a whole host of things and uh they actually were able to find a molecule that was an abundance mimetic called resveratrol that right. activated this and that's why it was like oh red wine's good for you but <laughs> what they didn't read was the fine print which says you have to drink 1500 bottles of red wine to get the same benefit i know we'll try that someday and, but uh, uh, I, I think it would be dead yeah <laughs> uh, then what was fascinating was that even though these mice ate crappy diets and didn't exercise their metabolism improved and they got metabolically fitter without actually exercising or eating better, which is kind of amazing. Hmm. And so then 
then they kind of followed that rabbit trail down and they found that there are other compounds that activate this longevity switch. This is one of the key three longevity switches, AMPK, mTOR, and we don't have time to go into all of it, but you can read my book, Young Forever, yeah. which is coming out in 2023. It'll have all of that in all there. All that good stuff. And the NAD activates the sirtuins. And it not only does, it's involved in energy and energy production, but it, as a powerful regulator of these uh, sirtuins, which then downstream activate insulin sensitivity, send out the army to repair DNA breaks, fix all these problems that your body has, methylation problems. And so you end up really having this upregulated longevity switch by using NAD. So I'm getting NAD. I'm doing an experiment on myself. I, I just did my DNA methylation test, and which is, is the way we look at aging, something called the Horvath clock, where he found that there are certain marks on your DNA through the epigenome, which is the the, the, the control switch for your DNA. Like you've got in every cell of your body, you've got the entire blueprint for every other cell. So in other words, your skin cell has a blueprint for your brain or your eye. Why doesn't your skin look like a brain or an eye? Because certain genes are turned off, certain genes are turned on. And those those are through these this epigenome, which is equivalent to the piano being the keys is your DNA. And the, the epigenome is the piano player. So you can play jazz or ragtime or rock or classical or whatever, same yeah. keys, you know, but very different outcomes. So the epigenome is regulating these pathways. And, and so we can actually look at our, our, our DNA methylation patterns over time and see our biological versus chronological age. And so I just did mine and I'm 62, but my, my DNA methylation age is 43. So I'm going to try to get down to 25. So I'm doing 25. all these cool. I'm going to do all these cool things that uh, are helping me, whether they're okay. NAD, which are abundance mimetics, or yeah. hot and cold therapy, which I did this morning, which is a adversity mimetic. So I, I got a little cold, which is actually probably is good for you to act. It's your body's like, oh shoot, something's going wrong here. I better kick into gear and start saving saving his life. Yeah. So it, it kicks in all these wonderful things. Heat shot proteins, which you get in the sauna, actually help you refold proteins and repair dysfunctional proteins and protein function dysfunction. So it, yeah. and just sort of experimenting with myself and trying a loading doses and so yeah. Well, this is the incredibly exciting time yeah. that we're living in right because there are so many resources that allow us to kind of tinker with ourselves i wear a cgm a continuous glucose monitor so i'm watching my blood glucose levels you know we both wearing aura rings so we can look at our heart rate variability and how we're sleeping and yeah, i mean i know if yeah. i drink wine or have some alcohol it my my numbers suck i know so <laughs> it just uh, you know, so we got to get our resveratrol somewhere else. Um, and, you know, yeah, I think we're both doing, you know, some time restricted eating. So I'm doing 16, eight, for example, yep, yep. and that directly, uh, interfaces with mTOR. Like for example, you were mentioning. Yep. So that's a great example because that's something that you have to keep in balance because mTOR, you need some it yes. for growth and muscular growth, et cetera. But if it's always on, it's inhibiting autophagy, exactly. right? Exactly. So this is this dance that we're constantly doing. Yeah. And we often see things in binary oppositions, like I'm in my sympathetic nervous system or I'm in my parasympathetic nervous system. Well, no, actually, we're just awash in various neuromodulators and neurotransmitters. And we're this constantly impermanent, changing organism that's constantly in relationship with each other and the environment there is no stable reliable self there's yeah. only the now yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah and we get to play with that and yeah. you are i love your curiosity 
and your proactivity because you're leading from the front. Yeah. You're yeah. willing to do a lot of these things <laughs> well, yourself. I, I basically, before I tell my patients to do anything, yeah. I try it on myself. <laughs> I'm right. a guinea pig. And I'm willing to be, you know, a little on the edge, take a little risk. I mean, I understand the science. I know where to, you know, where to push. Like I don't stay in the cold plunge too long, for example. But I think I think there's just this this beautiful way of exploring the edges of what we know. And we're we're in this exponential moment in medicine now which we've never been in and i don't think most people have a clue what's coming i mean you know we think about the iphone we, don't, we just take it for granted right yeah. this is an exponential technology i mean think about this this has more computing power than was required to send men to the moon right and yet we carry in our pocket it has all the world's information all the world's knowledge i mean i remember i remember being at cornell and going into olin library which is a big library it had six million books and I got super depressed because I was like, oh my God, I did the math. If I read this many books a week, by the time I'm dead, I'm only going to get through this many books. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, and Mark. I was like, but now, but now like you have everything at your fingertips all the time. It's kind of a miracle. Yeah. And it's just how we're going to use it. How do we leverage that information for human thriving, for human flourishing instead of for human suffering? Yes. And, uh, yes. And you're yes. leading the way. Thank you. I'm grateful, my friend. I Thank love you. spending time with you. <laughs> and I hope to build our little mini blue zone with you. Absolutely. Right I love that idea. When are we getting the sheep? <laughs> Goat milk. Goat milk. I'm in. Okay. <laughs> Mark Hyman, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Oh, Jeff, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Right on. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Mark Hyman. To keep abreast of Mark's work and whereabouts, check out drmarkhyman.com. That's drmarkhyman.com. And tune into his podcast, The Doctor's Pharmacy. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Make my mom proud. If you're a regular listener, you have an idea of how much effort we put into its creation. And we really do our best to keep advertisers to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for 15 minutes about ads at the beginning. But if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders and doctors like Mark. Now you can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read actually every email that comes in. I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>